Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 27, Execute the Nautilus Maneuver, where we will be looking at chapters 56 through 58 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of maneuvering. It's been a while since I've done this! <laughs> Behind the scenes knowledge. I think it's been a month. Yeah, because we're recording this like 10 days before you're going to listen to it, unless you're an early access person, in which case it's however many days it takes me to edit it before you get to listen to it. Anyway, there are rules here. One of those rules is I read the introduction that you have heard, I think, over 80 times now. But I'm still going to do it for all of the newbies because I'm nice like that. Each week we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Then we will share a recommended thing of the week and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Dawbooks, though if you're listening, Pat, we would really like to join up with you at some point to do something, because that would be awesome and fun. Second of all, all of our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read all of the Kingkiller Chronicle, or... spoilers be damned? Anyway, needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love to explore. All right, so that also brings us to our 45-second recap. It's your turn, and so that means if you go long, you're going to be eating some raspberries. Do you really want to give up some of your lovely chocolate that is in the house? I'll just get more. My plan to appeal to your desires has backfired. Yes, it has. I'm ready if you are. In three, two, one, go. Alvaron and Quoth discuss the nature of power whilst taking a lovely stroll in the gardens. The conversation is fascinating and philosophical. This interaction also serves the purpose of stirring up the courtly rumor mill. Unfortunately, when Quoth is left alone to his own devices, he can't help but feel trapped and continue to worry about the potential loss of his loot, not to mention Denna's case. He plays games with the gossip mongers, keeping his purpose a mystery, but this doesn't keep him terribly busy. Then Master Ash, <clears throat> sorry, Brayden, calls upon Quoth to play a game with him and teach him tack and courtly custom. A few days pass, and Alvaron finally reveals why Quoth is there, to recreate the story of Cyrano de Bergerac and help the mayor court Quoth's aunt. Um, what? Okay, you narrowly, and I mean narrowly, <laughs> avoided raspberries here. You came in at 44.84 seconds. No raspberries! You were cutting it close. No raspberries! For now. No raspberries. There's a lot of stuff, and we chose to go over 20 pages worth of really dense material this time. Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff that happens here. This might be a decision we regret, having also just recently recorded, and I'm still in the process of editing, our quarterly Sandman episode 
So I have a lot on my plate and we're going to talk a lot. And I'm not even sure we're going to get through this entire episode's worth of recording before we're like, food? So this will be an interesting experience of cutting it close for me, (laughs) which apparently has already started considering the nearly 45 second recap that I just provided. Yes. So uh, let's dive in, shall we? Yes. We start off with that rumination on the nature of power. We start with the distinction between inherent power, which is basically the stuff on your character sheet, that stat block. Your wisdom, your intelligence, your stamina. Charisma and strength, constitution, dexterity, all that fun stuff. Whether or not you have two hands. And then you have granted power, which is the stuff that is lent or given by other people. And in many ways... You can think of that granted power as privilege of a sort. That's what I was thinking while I was reading it. It just felt like the current terminology would be privilege. It's not exactly a one-to-one ratio on this, but it is very close. I would say that all privilege is granted power. Yes, but I would say that all granted power is not always privilege. Correct. So, like, the examples that we get here are things like status, taxation, legal authorities, rank, hierarchies, things like that. All of that falls into the category of granted power. Naturally, Kvothe, who has never really had a whole lot of granted power, not none, but not a lot, thinks that inherent power is the thing that is the best or the strongest. The most useful. And Alvaron says... You know, I can see it. You theoretically can't take it away, but you kind of can. Well, like when Kvothe is talking about how you use your body and you can't really have your power of your body taken away. Age takes it away. I mean, my God, my knees. There are ailments and injuries, but there's also things like sympathy, which could very easily dampen your abilities, your strength, your constitution. I mean, Quoth's inherent power when he had the plumb bob just rattling around in his head. Not to mention when he kept having to have his alar up and running full time to fend off attacks from Ambrose. All of that was taxing him. It was sapping him. And yeah, it can be taken away. You look at any athlete, right? Torn ACL. Yep. Like, I remember uh, Steve Zakawani was a player for the Seattle Sounders for many years. He started with the club when they first entered Major League Soccer. He's a really cool guy. He was also lightning fast, one of the fastest players in the league, and it was a major part of his game. He could go fast, he could shoot, he could assist, he was a good passer. He was the complete package. And it really looked like he was going to be the next big thing in U.S. soccer until April of 2011 in a match against the Colorado Rapids, Brian Mullen tackled him hard and with a studs up tackle broke his leg. And Zakawani was never the same after that. It took him about a year and a half to recover from that injury. And he had to deal with compartment syndrome, a lot of really gnarly complications along the way for healing. And when he finally returned, he was not the same player. He didn't have the lightning fast acceleration that he used to have. 
he didn't put his weight on his feet the same way. He wasn't as quick with the ball at his feet. He wasn't as sure with his dribbling and his passing and his shooting. All of that suffered because of something where his inherent power was taken away. You know, had things broken just a little bit differently. You know, had that tackle not broken his leg, obviously, yeah, he probably would have had a much different career. Had his leg healed better, much different career. A lot of that was stuff that he was not in control of. And it was not stuff that he could really control being taken away from him. You think of people who come down with debilitating diseases. Mayor Alvaron, for instance, is having his own inherent power slowly sapped from him by his mysterious illnesses. Future knowledge, we know what is causing said mysterious illnesses. And it's interesting because both random happenstance and malicious intent can result in the diminished power. Yeah, it can place caps on it. It's inherently limited. The mayor makes up for it by essentially having the kind of status that allows him to have other people do things for him. And being at the top of a food chain, that means that he can ask just about anybody to do just about anything, and they, whether they realize it or not, have granted him the ability to give that order. And it's exponentially more powerful than anything that a single person could do. Granted, Kvothe is, he's young, for one thing. He hasn't had a real taste of power like that. And I think also, if you think about heroic narratives, we consider people like Superman or Batman, who are effectively self-made, who have all kinds of inherent advantages, whether it is elite athleticism, superhuman strength, a genius level intellect, what have you. We think of them as sort of these individuals with all sorts of inherent power. But if you actually look at their power, the thing that makes them most powerful is their granted power. It's what lets them do things from a distance, to influence events by saying something, by being a symbol, by having an idea for how things ought to be, by setting an example that other people follow. These are all granted powers that make these people heroes more so than their super strength or what have you. And I think this is something that Kvothe is having to learn here. One of the things that's really fascinating is after we get this, we just have a whole bunch of examples of granted power and what it means. So Alvaron says, hey, you see that noble over there? He thinks that his status, his wealth, all of that stuff is stuff that he has by right, that he has just by virtue of being himself. But he doesn't because at any point I could, if I wanted to revoke his status, I could bankrupt his house, I could take all of his money, and he would let me. And even if he wouldn't let him, he can't stop Alvaron. Exactly. He doesn't have the power to stop Alvaron. It's that literal question of you and what army. In this case, Alvaron has an army, a standing army of people who will commit violence in his name and at his command. Most people don't have that. Also to point something out, because this is one of those little details that we need to pay attention to, as Quoth and Alvaron pass by that noble, Alvaron speaks up and says, Good afternoon. 
lovely day to be out in the sun, wouldn't you say? And because of the power that Alvaron has, the noble says, indeed, your grace, the cellists are quite breathtaking. My compliments. And Alvaron points out to Kvothe after the man passes by that he complimented Alvaron, who had literally nothing to do with planting or taking care of the flowers in this garden. At most, Alvaron hired the guy who hired the guy who hired the guy who actually took care of the garden. Right. At most, he pays for the guy's salary. And even then, he probably has never talked to him. I think it's also telling here that Alvaron is well aware of exactly where his power comes from, and he's aware of the constraints that come with it. He does not have unlimited power. He knows that if he oversteps his bounds too much, people will revoke that. For instance, if he is profligate in his use of people's tax money, the people who pay those taxes could rise up. They could revolt against him. If he's unable to pay his soldiers, they could stage a coup. They could just refuse to work. Yep. If he gets his country into a war that they can't win, he may find himself deposed. And while he may be richer than the king of Ventus, he is not the king himself. And if he pisses off the king too much, he may find himself curtailed in ways that he doesn't want. There is also a conversation about whether or not men can have children, as in obviously a cis man cannot give birth to a child. The language around, yet if a woman grants me the right to wed her, I can give birth to a son as granted power. Um, I hate that because I don't care. You do not have the right to impregnate someone just because you've married them. You don't have the right to demand sex just because you've married them. I understand in this society, it's a little bit less egalitarian and a little bit less, I don't know, consent matters. I would say that also when you are thinking about marriage in the sense of a landed nobility, concepts of love don't really enter into it. And when you have hereditary power, having an heir of the same blood to pass it on to is a major concern. It's the thing upon which the stability of the realm is built. They don't elect him, unfortunately. This is true. I just don't like that Kvothe is like, I can't argue this point. Yes, you can. But silly, silly boy, you don't realize that consent matters either, do you? Again, these are some of the things that I wonder if now that it's been a number of years since Patrick Rothfuss wrote this, knowing that his views on feminism and his views on being a decent human being have probably evolved, I wonder if he would write things like this now. And I wonder if in the next book we'll get a better take. I'm also going to say that Kvothe is young and he is in the presence of someone who wields far more granted power. And so if Kvothe is maybe not as vociferous in his argument here, I could understand why. It's understandable, even as we might disagree with the specific arguments. 
But it does also give us a clue as to some of the mayor's concerns. So first of all, we have his health. As we can see, he is somewhat ailing and sickly, having to walk with assistance. We understand also he brings up marriage and having a child, which means that he's concerned about his lineage and he's concerned about who his heir is. Again, because this is a people with hereditary nobility as the way that their power structure is aligned, there isn't an orderly way to do so unless there's a hereditary heir. Witness all of the wars throughout most of medieval and Renaissance Europe occurring when there is a dispute over who is the heir. When you have a contested claim, it's hard to have a peaceful transition of power. So it's understandable why he has this concern. It's perhaps short-sighted because there are other ways around it, but there you go. He wouldn't be the only one to be that short-sighted in his society though. And then we also get a little bit about taxation because this is where the mayor's wealth comes from. He doesn't have investments. He doesn't have a mercantile interest. He does not have any commercial interests. He makes money off of the land of his people that they pay to him. So merchants pay taxes, his serfs pay taxes, farmers pay taxes. All of those taxes then get turned into an aggregate pool of wealth that goes towards the maintenance of his armies and also the upkeep of the infrastructure and the construction of new infrastructure and then the upkeep of his palace. All of that is granted power and it's something that's weighing on him right now because that revenue flow is not going the way it should. It's disrupted, as we shall see. So that's another thing that is concerning him. And he's dropping these little hints. How does Quoth talk about these things? What can this wonderfully talented little prodigy that Threp has sent me do? How's he going to respond to these? It's interesting to see how he drops these hints. We also get a little bit of discussion about Alvaron's medical concerns. Today, he's actually doing quite well. He talks about how his physician, Codicus, clucks over him like a mother hen, and that he keeps making these potions that Alvaron is supposed to be taking. And the most recent one, Alvaron just poured it right into his chamber pot, and somehow Codicus knew. And apparently Alvaron has felt better since not taking his potion. Yet he can't make the correlation. There is some flim-flam at work. Though there's also the idea that logic in this case is pointing both him and Quoth and others to believing that the mayor's health improving is proof that Codicus's ministrations are helping. So right result, wrong reason? Correlation versus causation is a tricky one, and it can be very difficult to make a definitive statement on that stuff. And especially when you've got someone who's got a fancy title, who claims to be an expert in all of this stuff that you have supposedly vetted for trustworthiness, you're going to believe that person. Yeah, it's like hiring a contractor. I don't know how to do electrical to make sure that the wiring doesn't light my house on fire. I have to trust that whomever I have hired will also understand 
how to make sure that the electrical doesn't turn my house into ash. It's another example of granted power. In this case, Alvaron and his household have granted Codicus the authority and the power to make decisions about his medical treatment. Maybe some of those decisions are a little suspect, but they've decided to go with them. They've granted that power. We do learn that multiple conversations happen over the next few days, but the mayor is extremely guarded when it comes to how close he lets Quoth in, how familiar he lets Quoth be. And I think part of that is in the same way that if you think about an artist filing a copyright claim, they might not want to have to file a copyright claim for every single person that uses their stuff without permission, because there might be an instance of, hey, I think that it's perfectly fine. And I like the way that you're using my stuff. I like that you're sharing my music or my art that I've made. But to protect themselves from the bad actors, they have to claim everything, including things they might like. So in this case, the way to bring it back to Alvaron is that he might just not allow anyone in because he can't afford to let the wrong person in. I think there's a large part of that because of his power, his status, and the potential to have that abused. He is lonely at the top. He does not have people that he considers equals. He does not have people that he can afford to consider equal. His power in many ways constrains him because if he does something that jeopardizes that power, it goes away. And so Kvothe has an inkling that part of why Alvaron wrote to Threp was to specifically acquire a companion. And it's interesting that this comes up right now because in our most recent Sandman episode, there is a little bit of a question on whether or not Morpheus wants companionship and friendship with someone. And the idea of the powerful needing someone who is inherently not as powerful or just needing companionship at all, it's almost like a threat. It's something that he can't afford to publicly acknowledge. And I think it may be something that is there subconsciously, even if it's something that he does not consciously discuss or is even consciously aware of. Alvaron has been the mayor and he has been at the top of the nobility food chain pretty much his entire adult life. He's never had a period where he was just a normal person. Also never had a period where he hasn't viewed any relationship as a potential power grab. Because he's up at the top, everyone has something to gain by being in his good graces. That is not necessarily true for him. He has to be very selective in who he grants his confidence to. So yeah, it's natural that he maintains a little bit of distance. All he's got is just a letter from Threp. And he doesn't necessarily even know, though, that this person who has shown up is actually the person that Threp's letter talked about. This could be someone who just stole that particular letter on the highway and is now impersonating someone. Alvaron doesn't know who he's got in front of him. And he needs to know, okay, 
can I trust this person? Theoretically, he has the granted power from Threp, but what does that really mean? Meanwhile, we know that Quoth is still kind of going crazy in his room. Doesn't really have leave to just go anywhere at his leisure. He doesn't have really any moves available to him, even as he is getting a lot of clout at court just because people are curious about the mystery. And gossiping. The rumor mill has been going nuts. And a lot of the courtly attendants, a lot of the people who live and thrive off of Alvaron's court, make the pretense of welcoming Quoth and try to weasel out any information about why he's there. And it's very funny because Quoth doesn't actually know the answer to this. Not really. He says, I even suspected that there were a few attempts at seduction, but at that point in my life, I knew so little of women that I was immune to those games. It just reminds me so much. We had some of our friends over and it was really nice to have them over because those two are both ace just like I am. And all three of us are like, yeah, we don't pick up on that stuff. We don't understand that stuff. Imagine being, you know, that stage of when you're a kid and you just don't notice all of the things. Like when I was a kid, I watched Night Court a lot when I was like 10 and 11. There are so many sexual jokes in that TV show. And I literally just thought that sleeping together meant sleeping together. And I didn't understand. This is kind of the same mentality that Quoth had at this point, where any type of attempt at picking him up is just met with, I don't understand that reference. And it just struck me very funny. It struck me with that memory of just the three of us going, yeah, you know that thing that most people realized after puberty hit? None of the three of us get it. None of us know when we're being hit on. None of us inherently understand exactly what the huge draw is and why the whole sex sells thing happens because it doesn't work on us. Then we get to chapter 57, Handful of Iron, and the introduction of Brayden, about whom many theories swirl. Most of them having to do with, of course, he's Master Ash. And or Cinder. I mean, he definitely kind of looks the part. He has dark eyes. Brown eyes. They keep saying brown eyes. He has white hair and a white beard. And then all of his clothing is ash gray and charcoal. Huh. That's an interesting choice, right? <laughs> Fun turn of phrase. Before that happens, I actually have a little note. Both starts talking about how he comes off as being comfortable in all of the attire that he has gained from just needing to look the part at court. All of the tailored outfits that are incredibly itchy or uncomfortable or something where he can't lift his arms or any number of things, but they look fine. So therefore they are expected. And he talks about the difference of how he is able to pull this off versus someone like Stapes, who no matter how fine his dress, always looks like a baker or a grocer. Someone who's wearing his Sunday best. And he talks about how he was treating it like it was a costume. 
and that he was playing a part. And he brings it back to his 12 years of acting. Acting. Roughly 12 years, not really, because he was only 12 when all that stopped. But makes me wonder if his mom felt like she was only playing a part in the nobility. Because as we have theorized, and as many, many, many of us have theorized, Quoth's mother was a noble. And I kind of wonder if there are a lot of people pretending, a lot of people with imposter syndrome, or a lot of just flat-out actual imposters. You know, with everyone scheming in the nobility and being so concerned with keeping up appearances, it can get extremely suffocating. So I can imagine how Natalia Lackless might want to run off and join a troop and live a life where she can just be herself, where she doesn't have to live up to expectations, where she doesn't have to play a part. There's also another thing I want to point out and just kind of stick a pin in. Both Alvaron and Brayden, we're going to go with Brayden, were described as grandfatherly. Just leaving that out there. Anywho's. So the interesting thing about how Brayden introduces himself is he just knocks on the door and introduces himself. Hi. Want to play a game? Instead of sending a servant to request Quoth's presence. Yeah, or using a ring specifically. And these rings are a game of status within the vintage courts. There's a gold ring, a silver ring, and an iron ring. You send a gold ring to your superior, you send an iron ring to someone who is your inferior, and then a silver ring to someone who is your peer. And so far, all Quoth has been getting are iron rings, because everybody assumes that they are higher than him. Because there is no official status for Quoth. Now, they're right. It's indeterminate. And Braden is similarly indeterminate. He doesn't say what his business is in court, what his relationship with anyone is. He's just kind of kicking around. One more detail about his appearance. He carries a walking stick. The sunlight catches on the polished silver handle, which is wrought in the shape of a snarling wolf's head. Nothing ominous there. No, not at all. He doesn't come across as just this kindly grandfatherly figure with a rather malicious looking accessory. <laughs> it's a nobility thing, though. <laughs> Is it? Quite possibly. I mean, nobles are weird. He also reminds Kvoth of an owl. He definitely seems to see more than he says. And that is why owls make poor heroes, is a thing that Ari has said. Yeah. Incidentally, that's going to be the next poster. Yeah, it's a very interesting pair that the two of them make. Brayden is clearly playing Kvoth. He really is. He's like, clearly... Clearly, this kid knows how to avoid the most obtuse gossip mongers. Let's be clever here. Well, and I think Braden sees in Kvoth someone who has a lot of cleverness and potential to put himself into a position of power. I think that Braden sees Kvoth as someone who is 
pleased with their own cleverness and is purposefully disarming in a way that is going to bite both in the ash. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I mean, he even lays out his master plan. <laughs> like he says, I'm going to insinuate myself into your favor now by making myself useful and entertaining. I'm going to be your friend when nobody else is willing to really treat you as a person. I'm going to keep you entertained and stimulated. I'm going to have fun conversations with you. I'll be your buddy. I'll be your pal. Right. And you're going to go far, kid. And when you do, I'll have a useful friend who probably will do things for me. But is that really why he's doing this? You know, honestly, cards on the table, let's play the whole Braden is Cinder thing. <laughs> so if we look at him through the guise of one of the Chandrian, there's a couple things that I recognize about Cinder. As much as he loves the power that he wields as one of the Chandrian, he also seems to be a little bit disgruntled at having to answer to Haliax. And, oh, hey, here's this really clever kid who I've probably clocked from a mile away for what he can do, all of the stuff he knows, and all of the things that he might be able to do for me in the future. It might be in my interest to have him as someone I could use against Haliax. Someone who could help get me out from under Haliax's thumb so that I could actually do whatever it is that I want. I think there is also a part of him that is bored with immortality like he talks about how he's pursued power in the past as its own thing and he's had it he's had the taste it was fun but now he's kind of bored like he is literally a bored esthete you look at the chandrian themselves part of the reason that i think they're so inscrutable to the people of temerant is that they don't actually have a plan all they really want is to be left alone <laughs> So they can just be left in peace to just do whatever the fork they want, have parties, play games, just not have to mess with anything and not have to be constantly summoned anytime someone says their true names. And the more that happens, the more they keep getting brought to heal, the more they have to go do all this stuff. I don't think Cinder really wants to go out and cause mischief. He just wants people to shut up about him so that he can live a peaceful life. And Foth might be his ticket to that. Now, if that's the case, does Cinder know that Quoth is the same little boy whose parents were singing the entirely wrong sort of song? I think he knows. I don't know that he does. I don't know that he's tracked this kid. I just don't get it. Like, I think that the trail has probably gone cold and that the little boy was probably just a thorn in his side and a loose end that got left alone. But here's the thing. He had the power at that moment to close off that loose end real quick. Why didn't he? I think the reason that he didn't was specifically because he intended to have Quoth as an ace in the hole to get him out from under Haliax's thumb. And if that means engineering his own death, that might be its own release for him. Because at this point, like I say, immortality can be boring. Maybe he wants to have a challenge. Maybe he wants someone who will rival him. Someone who could even replace him. He wants to have an adversary? Yeah, absolutely. He wants someone who will challenge him. Someone who will actually give him a go at things. 
Like I say, he's seen everything. I'm not sure if I believe that, but let's just go back to Brayden is just someone in the court. I don't think that his intentions are altruistic. No, clearly not. I mean, he says as much himself. He's basically saying you're going to get to a point where you'll be in a position to do me a favor and I would like you to owe me one. But let's go ahead and talk about what his actions are. He smiles an honest smile and gets Kvothe to respond in kind. He disrupts Kvothe's boredom by bringing in a game. He asks if he can see the rings that Kvothe has received to see who has talked to him, as though he doesn't know. And he says, rest assured, I am not here in some vain attempt to pry at your secrets. Which is exactly what someone who was doing that would say. Yeah. Whether he is just a regular mortal or one of the Chandran, he's definitely playing Kvothe like a fiddle. He has come as the friend that Kvothe is needed. He's someone who talks to him as an equal. He's grandfatherly in that sort of avuncular way, that friendly way that is not distant. He is vulnerable, or at least he appears to be. He is charming. He's funny. He tells jokes. And the last thing he says before a little break in the story is, oh, yes, I think I'm going to have quite a bit of fun playing with you. And Kvothe thinks that this is about tack. And I think that this is about playing with him like a pawn. Or a cat playing with its food. Before it wriggles around and dies. Yep. So before Brayden parts, he gives Quoth a little bit of advice on how to make best use of some of those local customs and some of those subtleties that maybe he didn't quite get from Threp just because Threp is only able to give him the Cliff's Notes. So things like, hey, display your rings that you've received from people. People like to know who's been asking after you. And that might be useful for you. Give them an excuse to be alone for a little bit in the same space that your rings are so that they have the opportunity to snoop. You can also cultivate exactly what information they get out of their snooping. All of this is useful spycraft. If you wear a ring out in public... That indicates either a debt or that you're trying to curry favor. All of these things that he then goes on to stroke Kvothe's ego and say, of course you already knew all of this. I'm just talking out loud. I don't understand why people say that. Thinking out loud, I understand why people say. But talking out loud, I just don't get why that's a saying. (laughs) Moving on. So the other thing that Brayden does is give Quoth a gift. Three rings of gold, silver, and iron with his name rod in them. So now Quoth has rings of his own. So now he could send for people if he wanted to. One little small detail again sentence. I heard a rumor that your luggage was lost. From who? Makes you wonder if perhaps Braden had something to do with that mysterious sailor who got on the barge in Imray. Wrong ship for the shipwreck, though. But who knows what else was part of that, you know? What was he carrying? What was in his parcel? Was there something more sinister? Again, we don't have any clue that 
after Tarbian, that man was anywhere nearby. I mean, that's one of the perils of traveling by map. No details. However, we still don't know for certain that Braden had nothing to do with any of Quoth's misfortunes. But maybe? We do know that he's been keeping an eye on him, though. At least in court. The other thing is that Braden says, you can send me a silver ring, since we both technically have no status here. That either of us know about. He also says, I'm going to send a ring for you, and I'll let you keep it. So then Kvothe gets to have a little bit of granted power because Braden considers him a peer. At least he pretends to. Kvothe says, what will people say? And Braden just has this mischievous gleam in his eyes and says, what indeed? Again, I think part of this is here he's treating Kvothe as an equal, which almost nobody has done in his time in Ventus. And he's saying, okay, so Kvothe, you know how much you hate all of these people who are prying after you, who are trying to gather all your secrets? I'm not going to do that. Do you want to play a prank on all those assholes? And Kvothe is here for it because it allows him to, for once, have some semblance of authority, respect that he hasn't had pretty much his entire life. It gives him that taste of the granted power. So next we get chapter 58, Courting. So at the end of the last chapter, Alvaron has sent for Kvothe and interrupted a game of tack with Brayden. And then two days go by and nothing. Kvothe is sitting there sweating bullets over his loot and the potential that he has not only lost his loot, but Denna's lovely case. Interesting that he still considers it to be Denna's, not his own. And he's wondering what he could have done what was the thing that set this event in motion? Why? Why is he being left to stew? And is it Hanlon's razor? Never assume malice when it could be incompetence. I would say that in this case, never assume malice when there's a potential other reason. And in this case, it's because the mayor's health has had a downswing. But because of the way that Mayor Alvaron keeps everything so close to the vest. Nothing has gotten out to Kvothe, who also doesn't really talk to anybody, about the mayor's ailing health and why he wouldn't be taking any visitors. But right as Kvothe is about to lose his entire amount of patience and send a letter off to Alvaron to inquire as to why he's being left alone and if everything's okay... Stapes comes directly to Quoth's room, would usually have been a runner and not the mayor's manservant. So this is an odd request and an odd way to do it. But he's been invited to the mayor Alvaron's quarters. When Quoth arrives in the mayor's rooms, the mayor is in bed. Looks like he's been ill for some time. Which would explain why he hasn't been saying, hey, where's my buddy Quoth, right? It's one of those reminders, again, when people aren't talking to you, it may not have anything to do with you at all. It may just be that life is happening, that they're sick, that they're dealing with stuff. They just don't have time. I'll say that from the perspective of a person who has an anxiety disorder, 
Sometimes just getting back to people is really tough. There's a concept called climbing and a concept called a wall of awful. And the longer you put something off, the more bricks you add to the height of this wall that is hard to scale and the worse and more insurmountable it becomes. It might not be you at all that's causing this lack of communication. It very well could be your friend having to deal with their own internal demons, their own wall of awful, having to scale above it to be able to reach out to anyone, not just you. Exactly. So then Alvaron asks Quoth, how old do you think I am? He doesn't even say anything else. He just goes, hey, young one, how old do you think I am? And Quoth is like, oh, crap, I have no idea how I'm supposed to answer this. May as well be honest. Quoth's guess is 51 or 52. And nope. Alvaron is 40. My age. Almost. Also my age, almost. Ugh, that's an old feel. <laughs> yeah, we have more in common with Mayor Alvaron than we do with Quoth. Okay. <laughs> Yay. This is also something that really reveals the depth of Alvaron's illness. It's basically taken 10 years off his life. That's a pretty major thing right there. And age is something that sneaks up on you, as both of us can attest. <laughs> Yes. Behind the scenes, we, for the last two years, more than two years, as we've been making this podcast, have been sitting on the floor every weekend to record this in one of our rooms, the guest room. And we have just now, as of today, gotten a couch that we can sit on that is in a room the cats can't be in. And... I would say that 20 years ago, putting the couch together wouldn't have been a hardship at all. Getting the fiddliest couch cover that I have ever seen in my entire life attached to this couch would not have taken anything out of me. But right now I'm sitting here going, it's daylight savings time. So an hour has been sucked away from my day anyway. And we just put the most fiddly <laughs> couch cover on, which required us to dismantle the couch that had already been put together. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, I'm tired. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my back gets stiff when it's cold out. My knees are destroyed. <laughs> Yeah, this is what happens when you age, and Alvaron has aged even more. I mean, you and I at least are mostly dark-haired still. We haven't gone gray or balded really terribly. I mean, I hope I don't. So it's kind of startling when Quoth learns his real age, and it also is sort of a bit of mortality for him. Quoth realizes that, yeah, this is what's going to happen to everybody. This is what's going to happen to him. So then we also get... Alvaron finally revealing the impetus behind his hiring of Quoth. Or his requesting of Quoth's presence. Hiring involves, I don't know, paying him? Fair. But we get our first hint as to what's going on. So naturally, 
Alvron is 40. He's unmarried, which is unusual for someone in the nobility. Which has led a lot of theorists to wonder if he's gay. I would not necessarily put that out there, but he might be aromantic and he also might be asexual, but he also might just be so, 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 so careful that he can't find the right person to trust enough to be in a marriage with. Part of it is he's got his own ideas about who he can actually be in a relationship with. He's already ruled out anyone who is a creature of the king. So anyone who the king of Vint might control. Or have influence over. He doesn't want someone who is looking to use him as a climbing mechanism. He wants someone who is going to view themselves as his equal. And there are very few people who meet that category. So his dating pool is... One. He also doesn't want to put himself into a position where he's getting someone who will only love him for his status or only be with him because he's compelled them to. So it's interesting here, Kvothe, who is not just the lowest rung of courtly status, is also, especially a few years ago or maybe a year ago, been in the lowest status pool of all people in this society being an orphan on the streets of Turbian. And he brings up an interesting point. When you've gone through extreme poverty and extreme hardship, it is really hard to take the concerns of nobility seriously. And I would say that there's kind of a correlation here. When you are dealing with your day-to-day being something that is difficult or impossible to manage... It is hard to expand your circle of concern to things like climate change or systemic racism or anything that is a gigantic problem that doesn't affect you on a daily or hourly or minutely basis. I think also he's starting to recognize that as powerful as the mayor is, that power has come with a price. And in this case, it's meant that The mayor does not have the luxury of being able to just find his one true love or a true love. Or love. At all. Meanwhile, the mayor does have his eye on someone who he does seem to like and has fond feelings towards. It feels to me like the object of the mayor's affections is sort of a rare instance of someone who matches his societal requirements, and also matches his personal requirements. I kind of think he might be sapiosexual. I can see that. The mayor is very perceptive in ways that few people are. We get the sense that the mayor doesn't buy into all of these ideas that he's somehow entitled to his power. He knows exactly the limits of it, and he knows that if he endangers it, there will be massive consequences, not just for himself, but for everyone else that he has granted his power to. And everyone else that he has power over. These are all people that he not only has power over, but he has dominion over and owes protection to. Is responsible for. Exactly. His power comes with responsibilities. 
with great power must also come great responsibility. Yes, yes, Uncle Ben. Shut up. <laughs> Say that in a more Peter Falk-like voice. Yeah, yeah, Uncle Ben. Shut up. <laughs> so, turns out there's only one person in this very constricted dating pool that meets the mayor's requirements, and that is none other than Maylowin Lackless. Quote's not. We know. Whatever. While he knows that he has one choice, he also knows that he could try to compel her to marry him, but he also finds the thought of using his position to persuade this girl to marry him distasteful, which makes me like him. Yeah. There's also, <laughs> right after this, a little moment where Quoth looks outside the window and watch two squirrels chase each other around a tall trunk of an ash tree. A, ash tree, two squirrels, Quoth and Dinah. Uh, B, this has kind of a shade of the Once and Future King. You might not be familiar with the book, but if you're familiar with the Sword and the Stone, totally based off of that retelling of King Arthur. Essentially, I'm just seeing the two squirrels from the cartoon <laughs> chasing each other and the girl squirrel trying to chase Arthur up the tree <laughs> and him having absolutely no idea why he's being pursued. So I also think that it's telling here where the mayor is like, okay, here's the deal. Look at me. I'm not exactly a catch outside of my title here. I need your help gilding the lily, so to speak. Actually, Quoth guesses that part, earning Mayor Alvaron's ire, which he quickly backs off on and goes, all right, I get it. You're smart. Will you do it? So I actually read that a little bit differently. Hmm. I think the mayor was a little annoyed when he thought that it was the result of courtly gossip. Because if it was courtly gossip, that meant that his timetable might get moved up and force him to act before he's ready. And when Kvothe makes sort of this educated guess about it, it is something that is actually sort of a relief. Okay, this is someone who is perceptive and is also discreet, hasn't been spreading anything around, and also didn't get anything off of any of the other nobles, so they don't know anything. Okay. That's a relief. Whew. That's, I think, what his reaction is there. I can see where you've got that. and Yeah, okay. And I think also, again, okay, if this person is perceptive enough to figure all this out without relying on gossip or anything like that, who's been able to make an educated guess, who's been able to not quite deduce, but there's some deductive reasoning involved in this. This is exactly the kind of mind that I need helping me out here. <laughs> I got the right guy. I like that Quoth asks, so what do you want me to do? Do you want me to write letters, write songs, climb up her balcony by moonlight and leave flowers on her windowsill, dance with her while wearing a mask and pretending to be you? I don't dance very well. Sorry. Naturally, Kvothe's only reference here are plays and stories. It's charming, though. Yeah. Before we end the chapter, Alvaron is like, can you go away? I'm tired. Go ask Codicus for help with all of the ins and outs of the families of court. 
the families of nobility, the families of influence of this land. The guy's kind of a historian on top of being my physician. And Quoth is like, is he in the inner circle? And Alvaron's like, no, no one is in the inner circle. No, shut up. We don't talk about the inner circle. We don't talk about Bruno. You're right, we don't. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> and we won't. End of story. Well, that seems like a perfect place to end and then go on to your Phronimos. Yep. So I had a couple choices this week. I mean, really, there were two. So the literal definition of a couple. Yes, there were literally two. I could have gone with the safe, boring route of Mare Alvaron. But we're not here for boring and safe choices. We're here for interesting ones. And in this case, I have picked Brayden. Yeah, we know there's a very good chance he is Master Ash and or Cinder. That's not really the point here. There are some interesting things about Brayden that I think we can learn from. So first of all, he appreciates the value of good, stimulating conversation. He seems to enjoy talking to Kvothe just to have someone to talk to, and someone who isn't trying to just curry favor. Even though Kvothe is trying to curry favor, he's pretty naked in his attempts to do so when he does. And even as he's definitely playing his own game here, he says as much. And not just hack. Right. I mean, he lays his cards out on the table exactly what his plan is. He does so in a way that Kvothe buys into, because he treats Kvothe as an equal. That is something that Kvothe does not have a lot of. Most people either look at him as this vast superior or as an obnoxious twerp that needs to be put down. Who looks at him as a vast superior? Oh, I'd say a lot of the students do. The younger students? I would say that there are probably aren't younger students, but possibly newer students. And they probably ought not look up to Quoth. Well, let's also say that everyone who's had to duel with him in his classes, if we we're to believe Quoth the narrator, probably also thinks of him as their superior in a way. Yeah, I'll buy that. But Braden is someone who, while he clearly is a better tack player, having had more practice, and if the theory that he is Cinder is correct, a lot more practice. And he's also happy to just play a game. This is what keeps Quoth from going insane while he's essentially locked up in his rooms. Without his loot. This gives him an outlet. This gives him a way to pass the time. I have a suspicion that if the Cinder connection is correct, Braden has had to figure out how to fill a lot of time. I get the impression that this is meant to be a game like Go or chess. Yeah, a grid board game. I mean, we know as much on the grid board game because we actually own a copy of TAC that we have yet to play despite the fact that I actually know the designer. Uh, let us know if you'd like us to play and let us know if you'd like us to film it. The other thing here is that he knows his audience. He clearly has, by watching Quoth, figured something out, namely that Quoth appreciates cleverness and specifically cleverness for cleverness's sake oftentimes. I think also... Brayden is well aware that Quoth is enamored with his own cleverness and easily manipulated. 
Yes. Well, I mean, you have the bit where he says, oh, I use the Braden maneuver. What's that? Anytime I do something spectacularly clever. And what he's doing there is showing the same sort of self-regard that Quoth holds himself in. And that makes Quoth feel okay to indulge in that. And that helps Quoth let down his own guard a little bit. I was about to say it's disarming. It is. I think that there is something to being able to read your chess partner. Yeah. I'm going to also say that some things that one might consider manipulations aren't inherently wrong. For instance, if you have a piece of news that you have to give to someone and you know there are two ways that you can deliver it, one that will help the listener process it better and one that might make them more angry, pick the one that they're going to respond best to. You don't have to lie to them, but if you word it correctly and diplomatically, you might be able to achieve a better outcome. There's also no shortage of value in treating someone as an equal, and that's what Quoth is needed. He also needs something to take his mind off of the fact that his loot is still in Hawk. Absolutely. And like I say, Braden shows up with pretty much exactly what Quoth needs, which is time with someone who regards himself as an equal, as opposed to someone who has status that he can wield over him, or someone who is beneath Quoth. The other thing that I think is wise about how Braden handles Quoth is that he doesn't insult Quoth's ego. He says, so there are these things that are specifically unique to court here. These ways of being that maybe you are not familiar with. But I'm not going to assume directly that you are ignorant. I'm just going to think out loud. Of course you already know this, but indulge me. And it's also handy for us as an audience because it lets us get to know these particular vagaries of vintage court customs in a way that isn't just an info dump from Thrap ahead of time. Or from any other person in court. It's a lot more cleverly done for the audience. Because in this case, Quoth very much is our audience surrogate. None of us know anything about life in the vintage courts, and so we have to learn about it. And so as Quoth is learning about it, so are we. So wrapping up here, I thought Braden was an interesting case, and I think he does have some wisdom that we can gain from him. Hence, he is my Fernemos. I like your choice. Thank you. Speaking of interesting, let's learn your interesting fact of the week. All right. So last time you talked about the Endurance Expedition. Yes, I did. And I find that whole thing fascinating. So guess what? What? They found it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't remember, the Endurance is a ship that was sunk 107 years ago in Antarctica. And there was an expedition to go find it this past month. And they have all sorts of new technologies. They have great ice-breaking ships and they have crews that can man these little robots that can go up to three kilometers down and then use sonar to try to echolocate for the wreck of this ship. So it took about four weeks of searching in brutal conditions, day and night, sending an unmanned exploration robot up to 300 meters down to the floor of the sea 
in negative 35 degree temperatures. Uh-huh. And the crew of the S.A. Argulis 2 and the Endurance 22 expedition did find the ship. The wreck was found at around 200 meters down below the surface of the ice. And due to the fact that there are no wood-eating microorganisms or animals in the Weddell Sea, the ship is amazingly well-preserved and is recognizable and still has the nameplate on it very easily read, despite having sunk over 107 years ago. Part of the reason that there are no wood-eating microbes is because there is no wood. There are no trees. There is no vegetation. Nothing in Antarctica. So the wreck was found on March 5th, 2022, using a robot called a Sabertooth that could sweep the floor of the ocean using sonar. This robot differs from many used in similar explorations because it had to stay tethered to the ship so that the operators could assume control over it if something of interest was found. That tether had to be protected from sheets of ice and snags. It was very thin because if it was thicker, the currents could have grabbed it. And so the crew of the ship actually had to do things to push the ice away from the hull of the ship while the Sabretooth was exploring down below. Oh, that has to have been brutal in those temperatures. Yeah. I mean, you have to notice what's happening. You have to be paying attention to the sonar, also to the battery life. And I don't know if you've ever tried to take your cell phone out in the cold. Batteries don't do well in the cold. Tried to start a car in the cold. Yeah, exactly. Like, there are reasons that this doesn't work. And this is colder than just cold. I'm sure the seawater is even colder. Yeah, well, as luck would have it, the robot found the shipwreck just as its battery was dying. (laughs) So the expedition's crew had to bring it back up for recharge before being able to send it in for photos and the ability to make a full 3D scan of the boat. The Weddell Sea is one of the clearest bodies of water on Earth. So the photos and the video are really super clear. Oh, nice. I hope we're going to be including that in our uh, show notes here. Yeah. We're going to have a link to probably one of the news reports that I saw. Probably the one from Australia, because I think it's the best. So everything is very detailed and all the photos and video are very striking. And it is really cool to see just how much the ship looks like something that with like minor repairs could possibly be seaworthy again. Now, there are also some things preserved on the deck that could be viewed on the video. This includes things like plates and crockery, as well as a random boot. You got to wonder who left that. (laughs) Right, exactly. Why would you leave your boot? Just one boot. Yeah, and in the Antarctic weather, no less. Right. Did you have spares? Please tell me you had spares. Otherwise, you don't have a foot. Right. Now, because the Endurance is designated as a historical monument under the International Antarctic Treaty, the expedition is not allowed to disturb it in any way. So they can look but not touch. They can't bring anything up to the surface or enter the hold with a robot. But the discovery still holds an incredibly historic significance. I think that's awesome. And I'm looking forward to seeing some of that footage. Yeah. We'll definitely, when we get done with this, go take a look at some of the uh, news reports. Yes. 
I love that idea. You look so happy. I mean, it's great stuff. It's really awesome. I love that this is the thing that has happened this year. One good thing. One good thing. No kicking slushies. All right. So I've got a good thing of my own this week. So for me, it's a bit of music that I've been listening to on pretty much endless repeat for a while now. And that is the newest album from Ghost, which is called Impera. Best way to describe it is if ABBA decided to throw on some downtuned guitars and join the Church of Satan. <laughs> I really like Ghost a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, their story is actually really interesting. So when they first started out, they were completely anonymous. Nobody knew who they were, literally. Like, the people at the venues they played at didn't know their names or their faces because they insisted on going completely masked. They were only known as... Papa Emeritus and some nameless ghouls. That was their whole thing. You have a Funko of the, what was it? Yes, I do have a Funko of Papa Emeritus the first. Papa Emeritus has been replaced nearly every album with a new incarnation. It's a new character, fundamentally, even though it's all performed by Tobias Forge. So, like, first you had Papa Emeritus the first, then you had Papa Emeritus the second, who showed up on Infesticism their second album, and then Papa Emeritus III showed up on Meliora, their third full length. Then on their fourth full length, they switched things up. Instead of having a new Papa, it was Cardinal Copia, who is a junior member of the Satanic clergy. <laughs> and as of and as of Impera, he has actually finally been elevated to Papa Emeritus IV. Of course, their mythology is fun and goofy and it's influenced by horror movies and all sorts of fun stuff there. Like horror movies, like the Evil Dead kind of horror movies. A little bit Evil Dead. And also, I'd actually say it's like a very smirking take on like Rosemary's Baby. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. And The Shining and things like that. Okay. I was just thinking the campy nature of some of it. A little bit. I have watched a few of their music videos. Their music videos oftentimes play up that sort of campy element. Then they also have the sort of interlude videos where they make band announcements and have skits and things like that. Usually it's about the various papas dealing with church politics. It is much more entertaining than it sounds. It's pretty amusing. So the new album here, it's got some legit bangers on it, including Kaiserian, The Watcher in the Sky, Spillways, and then the lead singles, Call Me Little Sunshine and Hunter's Moon. Hunter's Moon is awesome. Yeah, that one also was on the Halloween Kills soundtrack. This year they also performed a cover of Enter Sandman for the Black Album Collection. Ooh. Yeah, check that one out if you get a chance. I have to now. So yeah, I mean, really what you've got here are some ripping guitar solos, soaring vocals, and then major key Satanism that work together to create something wholly unique. So you've got this hooky pop that's combined with black metal aesthetics, and it really works quite well. While many purists are going to say it's not metal, and I'm inclined to agree, it's still really good. It's a lot of fun. I agree. So with that, let's go to our seven words. I had the words from the books, and I was spoiled for choices today. Let's start us off here. First, I've got, the cellists are quite breathtaking. My compliments. Then I have, one physician is quite enough for me. <laughs> Perhaps the need for them will pass. Then, 
Do you know how to play tack? Nothing half as solid as a whisper. That would be unusually kind of you. And you got clever in the corner here. The mayor would like to see you. A guess and not from a rumor? And do you begin to see my problem? And I have a fondness for her. Does he know you plan to marry? And then here is the one that I've chosen. I've even been learning how to dance. Because that's just kind of fun. So you have the words from life. What did you pick? Actually, before that, I wanted to say there's a couple other ones from the book. Oh, yeah? I know when I'm being tested. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. So you're quoth, are you? He asked. Do not speak of this to anyone. And tack is the best sort of game, which is actually the one that I would have probably picked. I stand by my selection. That's fair. So what did you choose from life? I'm actually going to change from the one that we had discussed earlier. And what I'm going to say is yet another quote from Jill Barrett, because she is very wise and I really appreciate her spirit. Do not fear being an enthusiastic amateur. That's a good one. I live by it. Like, you just recently had a couple of interviews, and one of the questions was just genius. Yeah, I was asked, what would your hobbies tell me about you that your resume wouldn't? And we've just rearranged all of our upstairs so that we have a better space to record in that has a couch. We don't have to sit on the floor and where you can have your guitar with you in your office. Yeah, it's pretty nice. So I answered, you know, I love playing the guitar. I do it badly. <laughs> and I don't have any illusions that I'm some great musician or anything like that. But what it does for me is it gives me a way to practice grace for myself. When you are playing any instrument, really, if you mess up a note or a chord or whatever, there's no going back. You can't just stop where you are and go back and redo it all from the top. That's just a chopped up song and that's even worse. So you have to learn to recognize the mistake and not let it slow you down and keep moving forward, knowing that you'll have other opportunities for that to come back around so you can do it right. And it's teaching you how to learn from something without beating yourself up for it. You can only do that if you enjoy doing it for its own sake, not because you're competent at it. I mean, honestly, if you look at anyone who is good at anything, and I do mean anything, they went through a phase where they were an enthusiastic amateur. Everyone starts at that level. I don't care how good you are at something. There is a phase where you're an enthusiastic amateur. Now, some people maybe spend less time in that phase than others, but that doesn't mean they don't spend any time in it. Yeah. So Jill Barrow herself was talking about how she had taken some classes in stage combat. And then she made a video about a particular... I think it was a lightsaber and she got some things very wrong, but she was enthusiastic and graceful about the feedback that she received for it. 
And she's gone and fixed or responded to herself to fix it. And I think that if you wait until you are perfect at something or expect to be perfect out the gate, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. But if you enjoy doing something, do it with your whole purpose, with your whole self and enjoy it. Let yourself enjoy things. Let yourself be bad at things. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to do sometimes. And I know social media makes it really easy to be afraid because people can be quite cruel in their judgments of your skill, your ability. And I know that it can also be difficult just to be creative in general. But being willing to put yourself out there to try something and to learn and to grow and to practice, that's life. That's being an adult. That's being a human being. And I think that's pretty amazing. Like when we started this project, we didn't have any experience doing a podcast, which shows in the first few episodes very clearly. And I know that. But we have an audience of very supportive people. And to that end, we actually have a Discord server that we are setting up. We're still in the process of defining rules because we won't tolerate intolerance. But I'm going to include a link to the Discord server in the description of this podcast episode. And if you'd like to chat with us sporadically because neither one of us are very good at keeping up with things like this, but we still like the idea of talking with you and building a community and being part of that community with you all. And so enthusiastic amateur time, we're going to try to be fun and have memes and talk about the episodes and talk about theories. And I just think it would be a lot of fun to include people who listen to us. So that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 59 through 60 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the devil you know. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to our show, as well as bonus pods. The newest one is on the Sandman Volume 2, the first half of it, because we spent nearly two hours, maybe more than two hours, having a conversation that only spanned the first half of the book and are going to have to do a second one this quarter. <laughs> but that's out now because the Equinox was a couple days ago as of the time of this dropping, I think. I hope. Anyway, <laughs> we also have art and posters, which is also art, but random stuff. Anyway, and with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Now it's time to feast. Yes.
We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. I think I said Phoenix. Phoenix. (laughs) 